need to know that it got worse. I went somewhere Sunday and preached and literally coughed all over them for 35 minutes and felt terrible. That was the worst. But uh, yes, much better now. Anybody else sick? Sorry, it's probably my fault for coughing on you last week. Hey, uh, this is the last week. That's true. The last week that we're in John. We've been working all semester in this little section of the Gospel of John, chapters 13 to 17, often called Jesus' farewell discourse. We've called it his last lecture. And the last chapter is not a lecture. He's actually stopped lecturing a few verses ago. He's praying now. And uh, as one of my favorite commentators calls it, the Lord is praying. So this is the Lord's Lord's Prayer. And uh, he's praying for a number of concerns, uh, especially his people. And uh, and here in his last hours, he, he's very self-aware, and he's told his followers over and over, that these are this is his last day, these are his last hours. Um, on the eve of his departure, he's trying to get them ready, and now he's praying for them that they would be ready. Just to take stock of the situation in the world, Jesus, Son of God, come to change everything, is about to die, and really, at the time in which he prays, the world is not very demonstrably different. It really doesn't seem all that different at all. And uh, his followers, they can all pretty much fit in a room. Probably weren't that many more than the ones in this room. And... Uh, He's about to pray for the world, and uh, this world's about to kill him. And though they're about to kill him, he still prays for them. And we'll hear that uh, in our text tonight, that he still has plans and hopes and prayers for the world. Now, uh, show of hands, this is a non-judgmental show of hands, meaning I won't judge you if you raise your hand or not. I literally don't care. And, And neither will you judge one another. But it will be helpful for me if you participate. Okay, how many of you think that the world needs change? Okay, I figured that would be somewhat ubiquitous. Yeah. Okay, uh, how many of you think God is actually doing that? God is actually at work changing the world? Okay, a little less involvement. Uh, how many of you are confident that you actually know how God is bringing change? I expected that precipitous decline um, in, in confidence. That's okay. That's what we're going to be talking about. Uh, We're going to read here uh, Jesus' prayer uh, for his people and for the world, and then I'll talk about it. So we're going to pick up in verse 6 in chapter 17. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And now they know that everything that you've given me is from you. For I've given them the words you gave me, they received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world." 
I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I did not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we're one. I in them, you in me, that they may be become perfectly one, that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that have sent me. These know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you've loved me may be in them, and I in them. All right, long text. Let's pray. Our great Father, would you be kind to show us great things in your word? Lord Jesus, show us yourself, we pray. Be kind to us, we pray, in our weakness, in our tiredness, and weariness, in our need, or in our foolhardish pride that thinks we don't have any need. Uh, would you be kind to us, Lord Jesus? Show us yourself. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, it's a long text. In a long prayer, and I can't say even all the important things that need to be said. And uh, this goes back to that being sick last week. But uh, I, I think we can cover the main big uh, talking points. And uh, as it regards saving the world, which Jesus still has in mind, it seems what he's offering here is thoughts and prayers. He's offering thoughts and prayers. And uh, we, we live, in a, this is really unique. And, you know, over 42 years, you see everything a couple times. And like, whatever style you think is cool, I've seen it before. I've, I've done it. Um, but never before have I seen like a culture down on thoughts and prayers. And currently our culture is largely, it's very much down on just thoughts and prayers. If, you, if you're just offering thoughts and prayers, I roll. Why don't you offer something substantial? Why don't you actually do something? You've seen this, right? Social media? Okay. Uh, this actually reminds me of something about 20... Oh, how long ago was it? Our superhero, superhero movies are getting old. In the, in the very first Spider-Man, that's like two Spider-Mans ago, um, or maybe one, there's this scene where the Green Goblin like rips the roof off the house. He's come for Peter Parker. And sweet little Aunt May is like by her bed praying. Anybody remember this scene? Like one person, great, and uh, she's in the middle of like the Lord's Prayer, okay, and the Green Goblin's like almost. I haven't seen it in forever. It's almost like he crosses his arms and says, "Go ahead and finish," and she's at the line where she's saying, "Deliver us from evil," as he's about to like kidnap her and take her off, and it's almost like he's mocking the impotence of your prayer. Go ahead and pray what you need to pray. I am not concerned about it. I'm going to kidnap you in a second anyway. And, of course, he kidnaps her and takes her off. It's, it's that sense of the impotence of prayer. This doesn't really do anything that is behind so much of our dismissal of the just thoughts and prayers dismissal movement at the moment. And here is Jesus in his last hours praying for the world. And it's easy for some to say, like, well, 
Can you do something else too? Why don't you do something else? But actually it gets worse. He's not just offering thoughts and prayers. When you sit down and look at the prayer, as Jesus prays for the world, He pretty much spends the entire time not praying for the world. Do you notice that? He pretty much spends the whole time not actually praying explicitly for the world. As He says in verses 9 and 10, I'm, not, I'm praying for them, I'm not praying for the world, I would sort of say, yet. Uh, but for those whom you've given me, they're yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified them. And so Jesus is saying, actually, I'm praying for the church. I'm praying for the apostles, my closest followers, and those who will listen to them, and the church. And so his prayer actually seems to suggest that Jesus is putting all his proverbial eggs in the basket in the hope of the world in the church. As he prays for the church, he's actually praying for the world. As he prays for the world, he's actually praying for the church. And uh, it's here that some would say, wait, wait, the church? That, that divided, distracted, weak, worthless, backward institution? That potentially abusive, um, or in my, you know, maybe in your own particular case, that, that backwards... Uh, vengeful, judgmental group. I, I don't know what your experience with the church is, but largely culturally, we're not all very positive about the church, and some of you have had very particularly bad uh, historical involvement with the church. And so, you may hear Jesus praying for the church as the hope of the world and to say, can't we do any better? Something else, please, Jesus. Can you do something else? And it's at this point that we need to be reminded who the church is to Jesus. One of our denominations' pastors says, whenever we get really down on the church, Jesus' broad church across the world, we need to imagine us dogging the church and talking bad about her and then getting tapped on the shoulder and turning around. And there's Jesus who says, excuse me, you're talking about my wife. Uh, the church is Jesus' beloved bride, the people for whom he died, whom he loves very, very much. And that's not to deny that the church is not messed up, and it's not what it's supposed to be. But it is who Jesus loves. And it's pretty clear in this text what Jesus is after. He's saying that his great plan and prayer for the world is his church, holding on to him and holding him out to the world. So today we're going to talk about three things, uh, and this is in Jesus' prayer, how he prays that his church, his people, would do three things. Keep, be kept, sanctify, and send. So keep, sanctify, and send. And these are just words right out of the text. Frankly, I did this because the prayer is sort of convoluted. That sounds like I'm criticizing Jesus' prayer. Sorry, Jesus. I don't mean that. I mean that it's so tightly woven with so many repeated words that Jesus sort of may wonder where something begins and where it ends. And uh, I see these three major themes coming out. That the church is kept, sanctified, and sent. Okay? So, uh, we see over and over that Jesus is asking the Father to keep the church. First of all, there's the kept language that Jesus has kept them, and, and they've kept things too. Verse 6, I manifested your name, they kept your word. Jesus says in verse 12 that I kept them in your name. I've, I've retained the people you gave me. I took care of them. They're, they're faithful because I love them. But two times, Jesus very explicitly, these are his requests to the Father. As he prays to the Father, he prays twice that God the Father would keep them. Verse 11 
Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one as we are one. And then verse 15, keep them from the evil one. So uh, these are different prayers. And the first one, Jesus is praying that, that God the Father would keep his people in the truth. To keep them in his name means to keep them in faithfulness to all that Jesus has revealed to them about the Father and about himself. And Jesus says in verse 12 that he did this. While I was on earth, I kept them. Good. Well, you know, Father, I know. We all know how hard it was to keep them because they were dense and they didn't understand what was going on and they were tempted. They wanted to go home. They were afraid and they were tried and they were poor and they had a thousand different reasons to go somewhere. But I kept them in your name. And how did he do that? You go back and the way he did that was he cared for them and he taught them. He taught them over and over and over the same basic truths of who he was. And it sort of summed up for us in verses 7 and 8. And I'm not going to read them and point them out, but there Jesus basically just makes clear the, the basic essential truths that the, the disciples learned. That Jesus was not just some spiritual man, but he was straight from God. And that the words that Jesus spoke, this is what he says in verse 8, they weren't just words he created, they were the very words that the Father gave him. God's revelation. And that these disciples came to know in truth that Jesus came straight from God. They came to the studied personal conclusion that Jesus was not just a spiritual man, but the very Son of God. Verse 8, this Son being sent from the Father on a mission. That's sort of the whole body of truth. God in the flesh, speaking the very words of God on a mission. They became convinced of that truth because it's what Jesus told them over and over. It's what they saw in his life. And that's the truth. That's the truth that Jesus is praying that the Father would keep them in. Don't let them forget this. Don't let them stray from this. Pound it into their hearts. Keep them in it. Keep them in it, he prays, that they may be one as we are one. Now, one of the things that comes up over and over and over and over and over in this text, and it's probably the theme you would like me to talk about the most, but I'm not going to, is that of unity. It comes up over and over and over. And uh, I, I want to address it as much as I should. Frankly, I'm sorry. Again, you can blame my cough. Um, but I will talk about it here briefly. The way we often think about unity, especially if you're a Christian, is uh, we want all the different groups to get together and agree. And that's an admirable desire. But the question is, how do we achieve that? And the image I'm going to adopt for this, and and the approach I think we often think about is, imagine that we, as individuals and as different kinds of Christians from different denominations and backgrounds, imagine we're all a piano. Each one of us is a different piano. And we're all out of tune. And we realize we need to get on the same, like, we need to be tuned to the same registry or whatever. I'm not a music guy. I am a music guy, but I know nothing about music, except for what good music is. Come and talk to me about my year-end list. Um, the, um, now, the way we currently think about unity would be something like this. I need to go consult with that piano and see what they sound like, and then go talk to that piano and see what they sound like, and come to that one and see what they sound like. And maybe we can all agree what we're supposed to sound like. And you literally would run from like 100 different pianos, all trying to work towards some idea, shared sense of unified sound. And it would take forever and it would probably sound terrible. Right? Uh, the, the way you get every piano in tune is with a properly tuned tuning fork. One thing has the truth. This is it. All of you listen to it. 
and get tuned. That's actually Jesus' vision of what, the, of what unity is here. That there is a, is a truth. That Jesus has come and revealed it in His life, in His words. And as we listen to Him, this doesn't mean we agree with everything with one another, but as we listen to Him on the basics of who He is, what He's done, what He's said, we're playing the same tune. We're united to Him, and therefore to one another. And uh, that's good. That's, and I think that's not only the way things should be, it's the way things are, actually. Those believers that trust in Jesus, that acknowledge His truth, that believe it, we're, we're united to one another. So Jesus prays that, he would, that the Father would keep them in truth, and He prays that He would keep them from evil. And uh, He says in verses 14 and 15 that He's given them their, His word, and because of that, the world has hated them. This is a sermon I preached a couple of weeks ago where I talked about how the world will hate us if we actually seek to follow Jesus. And as I preached it, a lot of you looked at me like I was crazy. Like literally, like, what are you talking about the world hating us? And I don't get it. I love the world. They will love me back. Oh, my dear poor children. Uh, I don't mean to speak down to you. Um, but it's just sort of true. The world will think you're crazy. If, uh, and we'll, we'll get to this in the next point. If you seek to love Jesus as He's loved us and follow Him with your whole heart, uh, you'll not just be a freak show. You'll be weird and you'll be disliked for it. Um, yes. I don't want to talk bad about the world. I'm not out to talk bad about the world. Uh, I'm not trying to do that at all. But Jesus is simply saying that if we are in Him, that the world uh, will share the same animosity toward us as it does toward Him. And uh, He says this because we're not of the world. That these Christians that trust in Jesus aren't of the world. And so He says here in verse 15, I don't ask you to take them out of the world for really, you know, for like safekeeping. Store them in a shelf or a safe somewhere. But that you keep them from the evil one. Okay? And uh, right before this is this very sober warning about the son of perdition. That's a that's a that's a really bad nickname to have. Uh, this guy's name used to be Judas, and uh, and now he's called the Son of Perdition. But it's a very sober warning that there was one who was close to Jesus, knew him well, walked with him for years, and walked away. And Jesus here is praying that those who know him would be kept by the Father from the evil one. This is so important to Jesus that he not only prays for it here in the Lord's Lord's Prayer, but he teaches us to pray it in the Lord's Prayer. You know the Lord's Prayer. Deliver us from evil. Like that's what you're supposed to pray. Um, he wants us to pray that God would keep us from the influence of the evil one. And uh, I don't see the evil one working in our lives like the Green Goblin and Spider-Man. He's not going to rip the roof off of our house and drag us away. But what the evil one does over and over is two things. Accuse God's people and lie to us. He's out to pollute the truth and to pervert our understanding of what He's done for us, so that we would doubt our salvation, or misunderstand Him and, him and His ways, and, and get off course. And so Jesus is praying that the Father will actively protect us, and keep us from the evil one, by keeping us in the truth. Okay? So, uh, let me give you the overall picture of why this is really good news. I, I know, as 18 to 22 year olds, if I ask, like, hey, who of you would like to be kept? Who wants to be kept? Any of you feel like you need a keeper? Uh, listen, you do, I've got one person. Uh, they actually probably want a life coach more than a keeper. Um, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm about the most strongly willed, self 
determined, independent cuss I've ever met. I really am. I don't want anyone to hold me back or tell me what to do. And it's a, it's a weakness, okay? I don't want anyone to keep me. Really, I don't. But I need it, and so do you. And it's good news. So the, the, the picture here is, here is this. If you trust in Jesus, you have the eternal Son. You know, he's pretty good at praying. Jesus is good at praying. He's praying for you that the Father will keep you, okay, and, uh, and, and care for you. And some of you are thinking, like, I don't really need that, I don't think. Actually, I beg to differ. Um, let, me, let me show you what knowing that you're kept looks like from the inside out, okay? Psalm 121. I think we have that up there. We do. This actually has something to do with some of the stuff we talked about last week. Fear, anxiety, worry. Psalm 121. What if you knew every day, deep down, that the words of this were true? That the Father did this for you all the time? Imagine this. Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel, he doesn't slumber or sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. He will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. (laughs) Do you not want that? Do you not want to know that reality? If you don't, friends, what you want is to be your own God. But this is what it's like to have a loving Father that keeps you and cares for you. And, and you need to, some of you know this reality. You just need to hear it over and over and over again. That you have a Father that keeps you. I suggest you actually become really well acquainted with this psalm. Pray it until it's just natural. And you say it and you know it. You have a Father that keeps you. He's also a father who sanctifies. I'm going to move to this last, the second point really quickly so we can wrap up the third one, which is the main one. <coughs> he keeps us, but it's not because we're in some kind of pristine condition. It's not like he puts us in one of those like baseball card plastic cases and puts us on the shelf, um, safe from danger and usage. Uh, instead, uh, we're still works in progress. We need to be sanctified. And that's a really, really fancy word, a theological word. And uh, I'm only using it because Jesus did it here. Um, because it means a couple of different things. And uh, it means set apart and to be made holy. And the the mere fact that Jesus is asking that we would be sanctified, that the church, that God's people would be sanctified, means that part of God's answer for the world's need is a people who are changed. That God knows that He needs a people that are changed, that are like Him. This is part of the cure, part of the hope that He offers the world. So uh, let's go through this one pretty quickly here. 
to sanctify means to make holy or to set apart for God's use. And uh, here, twice, Jesus basically, <coughs> basically prays that God would sanctify them. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then he says in verse 19, for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Now you put all this stuff together and it's at least three or four things you need to know about what Jesus is talking about here, okay? When Jesus says in verse 16, and he says it in verse 14, hey, they are not of the world. But I'm not taking them out of the world. But they're not of the world. He's talking about his disciples. He's talking about the church as well. He's saying that if you are someone who believes in Jesus... You already have a changed relationship with the world. There's a sense in which because you trust in Him, you are already not of this world. That doesn't mean you're not a creature. He's not saying that. Of course you're a creature. Uh, He's not saying you're not a human. He's not saying that at all. But He's saying because you've trusted in Him, who is not of this world, um, is what Jesus is saying in verse 16. Where's verse 16? Let me read it. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus is saying, when you trust me, you become like me. And I was in the flesh, and I am in the flesh, but I'm not of this world. In other words, I have a different citizenship. And Jesus is saying, when you trust in him, you become citizen of another kingdom. You have a different allegiance, you have a different king, with a different set of ethical standards. You even have a different anthem. You have different marching orders. Okay, You don't cease to be a citizen of the world. You don't cease to be a citizen of the United States. But you have a different ultimate allegiance and a different set of standards. And in some ways, Jesus is saying, hey, I've adopted you into the family. And in some ways, because of that, heaven has been dropped into you. And it's it's going to begin to change you. So part of being sanctified is to be set apart. You're now part of a different kind of kingdom. And now you begin to undergo this natural change, which we call holiness. And uh, elsewhere, the Apostle Paul says, hey, this is sort of what it's about. God brings you to himself that he might make you holy like Jesus. And that's not a word that many of us necessarily like <laughs> like very much. This word holy, it sounds like, I don't know, sad, boring, no fun. What other words does it come to mind? Prudish? Grandmother, maybe. Uh, we should play word association. Um, and... Uh, Unfortunately, if you have those associations, that's because you've gotten very bad ideas of what holy is. Uh, To be holy is to be changed more and more into the family likeness of Jesus. The the picture of the Bible is that Jesus is your older brother. And uh, when you're united to him by faith, you become like him. This doesn't mean you begin to go out of your way to be more of a freak than you already are. And some of you, for goodness sakes, you don't need to do that. Uh, You're strange enough as it is. Um, It simply means that if you know God's love, and you begin to love God and others like you're supposed to, like you naturally will if you know Jesus, it will make you different. It will simply make you different. It will make you different in your engineering classes. It will make you different in your house. It will make you different in Tower A. It just will. For fun one day, for kicks, go and read the Beatitudes and put them in American culture. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness in Tower C. Blessed are the peacemakers on social media. If you love Jesus and his ways, you will be strange in this world. You just will. And uh, that's okay. 
We'll get to the, the fact that there's a joy in this. Um, but let me make it clear, this is not up to you. This is not something you do on your own, by your own efforts. Jesus blazes the way here. He says in verse 19, um, For their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. And that word consecrate, it's the same word as sanctified. Jesus is saying, I set myself apart as a sacrifice that they might be sanctified. I set myself aside as a sacrifice and put myself on the cross that they might become like me. It's by Jesus' life, Jesus' words, and Jesus' death on the cross that we become like Him. That we're slowly weaned from self. Literally. As we look at the cross, we realize my selfishness, my sinfulness is why that had to happen. I think I could deal with a little less than me and my life. And a lot more of His love. And so we want more of Him in us. And we set out naturally because of what Jesus has done for us. Because of His love to love God and love others more. So it's by the cross and it's by the truth. Here in verses 16 and 17, He says it three times. That we're sanctified by God's Word. We're sanctified in the truth. And that, I mean, let's make it as simple as possible. It means if you're a Christian, or you want to be a Christian, and you want to change, you want to become less like the addicted, dependent, angry, lustful, uh, vengeful, gossipy. I'm not thinking about any one of you in particular, by the way. I'm just thinking of all of you. Um, um, Anxious, uh, controlling, domineering, or perhaps fearful, uh, skeptical person that you are, it means you can't do it apart from God's Word. I mean, you can try some self-improvement technique if you want to, but Jesus doesn't promise to use that in any way. He says really clearly that we are sanctified by the Word, by the Gospel, by the truth. And and it's, frankly, a little bit of a, a downer for some of you because, man, you would love it if you could do this instead, like, I don't know, at a freshman breakfast. Because that's not nearly as awkward as sitting here listening to you, or boring as listening to you teach, old dude. Um, and it's not nearly as exciting as some awesome retreat or some great spiritual experience. And God can use those things. But he's making it really clear right here that the way he changes hearts and lives is by his word. The way he changes hearts and lives is by his word. If you want to change and become like Jesus, you cannot neglect this. You just can't. It's his word, read, studied, believed. It's how he changes us from the inside out. So Jesus keeps the church and sanctifies the church. You put together, it actually means the church is supposed to be happy and holy. If we're kept, we're happy. We know that we're loved and holy, more and more like Jesus. And we don't do that just to sit around and enjoy it ourselves, but we're sent on a mission. Okay, This is the last point. That this church that is kept and sanctified is sent. In verse 18, he's speaking of the disciples here, but he'll make it clear to the rest of us as well. Verse 18, as you sent me, Jesus is praying to the Father, so I send them into the world. It's really important. Jesus has said here, they're not of the world, and I'm not praying that you take them out of the world. Don't protect them. Well, protect them, but like, don't stick them off in a shelter somewhere or in a bunker in the ground. He didn't prescribe bunkers for us to hide away from the world. Instead, his assumption all along was that he would send his disciples and his church into the world. Why? Because he still cares about the world. He still cares about the world. He wants the world to know what he's like. 
And so uh, I, I want to make a couple things clear here in this last point, and then we'll wrap it up. Jesus here cares about the world enough that he's not just sending anyone. It's, it might seem in his prayer like the world's an afterthought. Literally, he doesn't pray for it in great detail. It sort of comes last. But it's not an afterthought. Just think about who he sends. Okay, but just an afterthought. He just sends some errand boy. Oh, okay. Oh, actually, Judas, don't kill yourself. I've got a job for you. You didn't quite make the cut. I'll give you a second chance. Why don't you go to the world? Like, you're obviously not a very good apostle. But uh, I'll, give you, I'll give you a second job. Why don't you go to... It's not a very good job. They're going to hate you. But you know enough of the truth. So why don't you go do it? No, it's ridiculous. No, Jesus sends his very best to the world because he knows what's required of them. It's, what he, it's what's necessary. He doesn't send an errand boy or some second cut person. Instead, uh, when God chooses to engage the world that the world might know God's love, who does he send? He sends his own son. He himself comes for the world's sake. And uh, I think it helps to have the big picture in mind. Uh, The big picture here is simply this. (laughs) It's not a picture that you may like. And uh, it's not a picture the world may like. And you may disagree with me on this. And uh, that's okay. It's my job to preach the Bible. But the picture of the Bible is that the world is sick. It is sin sick. Its sickness will eventually kill it. It's going to die. Unfortunately, the world is in denial that it has a problem. And when Jesus comes with the antidote, he is the antidote. And his words are the antidote. They decide, we would actually rather kill you than listen to this anymore. And so they do. They put him to death. Rather than embrace the antidote. So, Jesus himself comes as the Son. This text says it five different times, actually. Just these 20 verses. That Jesus was sent. Sent by whom? The Father. The Father cares enough about the world to send the Son. And Jesus says it over and over. I am the great missionary. I've come for the world. I've come to the world. I've come to make them know. I've come so that they might know the Father's love. God cares enough about the world to send His Son. That they might know that there's a way back home. And He's on the mission to save the world. But He knows they're going to put Him to death. And in God's great plan, that death is part of the plan part of the antidote, part of what the world needs to hear. That there's a way back through the death of Jesus. So then what does he do? He could say like, well, you killed the son, and so now I am going to crush you. That's a completely logical conclusion if you're the father, right? Father sends his own son, world decides to kill him, and father says, well, you just killed the best missionary, best representative, and my most beloved person ever. And so, that is strike one, two, and three, and you are done. Anybody think that's not logical or reasonable? I think it's fairly reasonable. He doesn't do that at all. Instead, what he does here is he keeps sending. He has these apostles, these people that trust in him. He keeps them, he sanctifies them, and he says, I'm going to send you. And uh, they will know, the world will know by your words. Verse 20, really cool. I don't ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus is praying about the apostles. These 12 people, well, 11, because one's a son of perdition. And he's saying, hey, 11, they're about to to walk out the door in fear. They're about to abandon him. But Jesus sees and knows what's going to happen. And he knows they'll be faithful. He knows the Father will bring them back. 
And he says, you know what, guys? You're going to remember, just like I, I'm saying, everything I've told you. And you're going to write it down. Like in the Gospels, you're going to write it down. John, beloved disciple, you're going to write it down. And the world will come to know who I am because of your words. And so Jesus prays for those people that believe. He sends his apostles and and the church is formed in verses 20 and 21. There are those who believe through their words. That's me. That's you. That's millions and billions of people across the world. And uh, then we too are those that are sent. And Jesus here in verses 20 and 23, 20 through 21 and verse 23, gives us the final big picture. Okay. I'm going to read uh, verse 20 and uh, 21. I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. So the picture here is this, that when the church, God's people, know Jesus, rest in him through the apostles' words, through the gospels, um, and share those words. And when they live out those words, that the world will see in them the truth of the gospel. They will hear the gospel, the message of the good news, because we read it and we preach it like I'm doing right now. But they'll also see it. And, and Jesus makes it clear how they'll see it in our lives in a couple different ways. One, in the unity. In the unity. He says it three or four different times here. That they will be one as the Father and Son are one. That there will be a loving uh, relationship among Christians uh, that is unlike what they see elsewhere in the world. And that, that unity will make them stop and say, what? This is pretty unique. I wonder where that comes from. And, uh, and also, in verse 22, that there is a glory that they'll see. And, uh, and that glory here is not, the, the, I think it's very opposite the way the world thinks of glory, which is, give me the glory, it's all about me. No, the glory here is of Jesus and the cross and how the Holy Spirit shines the spotlight on Jesus. And that if you're in a community of believers that knows Jesus and is focused on Him and His words, that, that Jesus is the glory. He is the beauty. We exult in Him. We glorify Him. We love Him. That we show Him forth. And that that makes us non-anxious, non-performative people that have time just to be humans and love others. That's different. That's attractive to the world. And then verse uh, 26. What also abides in our community if we know Jesus' message and we rest in His words, we have the Father's love. Verse 26. I've made known to them your name. I'll continue to make it known that the love with which the Father has loved me may be in them. If we rest in Jesus' words, if we know that He was sent, if we know that He died for us, if we trust in His words, we'll know the Father loves us. We'll, be, we'll know that we're kept. We'll be assured and we'll be at peace. And then lastly, these words of Jesus, the very last thing He prays, and I in them. Jesus says, if you rest in my words, if you trust me, if you know the gospel as a group of people and you're united in that truth, I myself will be among you. The world can't see all those things, but some can. And, and the picture here is this, that the church, imperfect, not the way it's supposed to be, often lets you down when it embraces Jesus, preaches the gospel, focuses on who He is and what He's done. These beautiful qualities will be manifest. Unity and glory and the Father's love and Jesus Himself will be present. 
And some people will come in and say, this, this is interesting. This is different. There's something different about you people. I, I don't know that I believe any of this, but I want to be here because this is wonderful. Hey, listen, what this means for you, whoever you are, is one of two things. If you're a Christian, this means you need to be part of the church. You have to be part of the church. You, you can't do these things by yourself. You're not called to. It's God's plan for you to be part of this people and to work together to exhibit this beauty, this unity, this love, this part of the way the world comes to know who Jesus is. And you have to do that in the church. But also, lastly, if you're, if you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, you're not sure what you think about these things, you're struggling, you're confused, you're wrestling with doubts, you need to know that God the Father knows that this is a good place for you to come. And look, smell, ask, wonder, and, uh, and really wrestle with it. Is it true? Is it, is it true that what is different about these people is that Jesus is actually here? Like that, that guy from 2,000 years ago that died, he's actually here. Is he actually here? And that's where you are. Please know that you're invited to do that right here. We would like nothing better than for you to come and ask those questions right here with us. Well, I have gone long. That's what happens when you preach two sermons in one week.